This week's podcastle is brought to you by M.K. Hobson's debut novel, The Native Star, available now from Spectra at a bookstore near you. Podcastle 121, giant episode for September 7th, 2010, The Warlock and the Man of the Word by M.K. Hobson. Rated R for violence, gore, and language. Welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson. When I was a kid, I once complained to my father that we in America lacked cool mythology. Specifically, I was disappointed that we didn't have anything on par with the King Arthur or Robin Hood stories. My pa, well, he was a bit sore with me for my lack of perspective, and he took me to task for it. What about Frank and Jesse James, he asked. What about the gunfight at the OK Corral? What about Billy the Kid? I remember being surprised by his response, and I remember realizing that the more I thought about it, the more I agreed with him. So, you can imagine how betrayed I felt a few years later when he refused to take me to see Young Guns 2. It was rated PG-13, and I was like... Yeah, my parents took the MPAA ratings very seriously, American Mythos be damned. The funny thing was, although they didn't let me go to the movie, the original Young Guns, which, full disclosure, was rated R, was playing on network television. Sure, they had edited it down some. Emilio Estevez couldn't say certain four-letter words while he stuck his six-shooter through his fly in an outhouse and killed some murdering son of a bitch for killing his friend, but, as you can see, despite being sanitized in places, there was still lots of room for my imagination to flourish. The violence, the sex, the peyote. Wow. When Charlie Sheen got his guts blown out by some old geezer and the rest of the regulators rode off and left his body laying in the dirt, I was shocked. No wonder my parents didn't want me to see this kind of thing. It was awesome. My dad did eventually redeem himself in my eyes. He took me to see the R-rated Unforgiven when I was 15. So as a result of all this, I guess I became pretty fascinated by the Western genre. Sometime later, while living in Germany, a friend of mine gave me Stephen King's The Gunslinger. It's the first of his famous Dark Tower books and still my personal favorite of the series. King had this idea to make a fantasy epic, but instead of a knight in shining armor, he was inspired to grab from Clint Eastwood's spaghetti westerns and give his fantasy hero six shooters and a Stetson hat as he went about killing zombies, demons, monsters, and anyone else who got in his way. This genre known as weird westerns has been around for a while. Joe R. Lansdale has been doing it for decades, and Robert E. Howard published one in Weird Tales back in 1932. That said, we seem to be seeing a lot more of it in fantasy fiction these days, at least in short fiction, and I gotta say, I like it. Today's story is smack dab in the middle of a whole bunch of weird stuff, including cowboys, whores, demons, preachers, and warlocks. There's limited whoring, but we're definitely playing for blood here. It's with great pleasure that I introduce to you all The Warlock and the Man of the Word by M.K. Hobson. You all know M.K. Hobson not only as a great writer, but as one of the kick-ass co-hosts of Podcastle. Guess what? Hobson has her very first novel out now, right now. It's called The Native Star, and yes, it's also a weird western, and it totally rocks. So please get yourself down to the local supply store and pick yourself up at least six copies of this thing to ward off evil spirits. 
The story is read for us by Bob Eccles, who read The Tiny Man and Caroline for us last year. He's a radio news reporter and also enjoys writing short horror and sci-fi stories. His stories have appeared in several publications, including Necrotic Tissue Magazine, and he's also a submissions editor for Flashes in the Dark, a website of horror flash fiction. So strap on your six-shooters and hold on tight to your talismans, because I guarantee there will be blood, and not all of it will be red, though I sure as hell hope some of it is. And enjoy the story. The Warlock and the Man of the Word by M.K. Hobson There had been no rain for three months. The hills were rust-brown, as cracked as the soles of a dead man's feet. And when the hot wind came tumbling over them from the high deserts of Colorado, the lodgepole pines rattled like small shot poured onto a tin roof. The wind boiled thick red dust into choking clouds, made the cats and drunks nervous. On the hot winds, the sons of the mountain king circled, swooping, the thermals filling their broad black wings. They hunted the flanks of the Sangre de Cristo's mountains, stooping to seize fat white sheep in their talons, carrying them from the mountainsides as they had in their old homelands far across the sea. Their brief, swift shadows flickered over the silver-weathered buildings of the town of Olihirtos. Mrs. Jorgensen ran the horse out of a big, square building that had once been butter-yellow, but had weathered to the color of chicken fat left out on a plate. The place was built sturdy, of white pine and fir, and had fine scrollwork supporting the eaves. The windows were covered with stretched oil paper, ripped in places. At night, behind the oil paper, shadows moved in the light of kerosene lamps. Some of the shadows had horns, some did not. The building had three floors. The saloon was on the ground level, and above it were two floors of small rooms where the girls worked. It was in the room on the east corner of the top floor that the demon prince, Methi Piertrogo, was shot dead. It was past midnight on a Saturday, a hot night after a day when the thermometer outside Joet's general supply had risen to 103. The hot, thick, dark air was split by a sound like branches being snapped. Two cracks. No one downstairs heard the sounds. Miners from The Baby Boy and The Independence and The May Queen had gotten their monthly envelopes that day. There was every kind of miner in the dance hall that night, alive and undead, Indian and white, human and demon. The noise they made was deafening. Then Minnie, a young whore with yellow hair, came stumbling down the stairs. She was splattered with black blood, a great deal of it, all over her face in the front of her dress. Mrs. Jorgensen! Mrs. Jorgensen! Her hands fluttered around her face, as if she didn't know whether to cover her eyes or claw her flesh. He's dead! He's shot dead! He's shot dead! Methy Piertrigo! Well beloved! She choked on the words, and when she continued, her voice was a shredded rasp. It was the new girl, Squaw Bess! Mrs. Jorgensen grabbed her arm and shook her hard. The Oros Basilias will have us all! Minnie's voice rose to a thin, desperate squeal. The Mountain King will destroy the town! Hush up, you ninny! Mrs. Jorgensen snarled, shaking her again. But it was too late to hear the story privately. The words were already traveling through the crowd, excited mouth to eager ear. China Jack, Mrs. Jorgensen's big Cantonese hired man, hurried up the stairs, taking them two by two. Miners nipped at his heels. 
When China Jack reached the second floor, he was met by a cluster of pale-faced, big-eyed whores, clinging to each other and trembling. They all pointed up to the third floor. China Jack followed the acrid stink of demon blood. It led him to the little room at the east corner of the building. He placed himself in the doorway, spreading his arms to prevent the miners behind from surging in. Shift, Chinaman! Let us see! But China Jack would not shift. He stood staring. Squab Bess knelt on the worn pine floor, humming softly to herself. Her head was down, and her eyes, strange pinkish-brown eyes fringed with white lashes, were focused on her own twisting fingers. Abalone shell hair tumbled around her shoulders. Her doe-white face was streaked with demon blood, sulfurous quicksilver already tarnishing black. Methi Pirtrogo, well-beloved, youngest son of the Mountain King, lay before her. His body was contorted, one twisted leathery wing stretched limply over the rope mattress bed. His coal-black hands were clenched, as if he'd tried to cling to the hem of his own departing spirit. He'd been shot in the throat. The bullet had clipped the big vein, and his blood had sprayed all over his fine brocade waistcoat from San Francisco, and his custom-cut jacket, and the walls, and the furniture, and Squaw Bess. His own gun, huge and obsidian-handled, a demon killer, lay beside him on the floor. Oh, Lord, ain't this a sight? Someone run for his spawn, brother! Run for Timos! Mrs. Jorgensen pushed under China Jack's outstretched arms. He did not try to hold her back. She blinked once, the small movement of her eyelids fixing the horror of the scene. Then she drew in her breath and gritted her teeth. She grabbed a stained sheet off the bed and threw it over Methi Piotrogo's body. Jack, get the men downstairs, she said. Free drinks all around, she said louder. But no one cared about drinking now. Miners pressed closer in the hall, struggling to see into the room. Men and demons shoved at each other. Ugly words were already being exchanged. Mountain King will have the town for this, a demon in denim spat against the floorboards. A paunchy human in a red flannel shirt jostled him hard, rotten teeth bared, hand over a gun loaded with silver bullets. Let him try. Then a voice, low as the grumble of falling rocks, came from the top of the stair and grew louder as the speaker pushed his way through. Methy? Get the men downstairs, Mrs. Jorgensen hissed desperately to China Jack. She recognized the voice. Timos Pirtrogo, fondly indulged. Methy's older brother. Don't let him come in here, for God's sake. No one's going to keep me out, Timos Pirtrogo roared. He was a huge, even as demons went, with thick black arms and gnarled, clawed feet. Bare-chested, he wore only a pair of ragged denim pants, tied with a frayed rope. Unlike his younger brother, who liked to mix with humans, Timos came to Olihirtos only to drink whiskey. He used his wings, corded with ropey muscle, to beat his way through the crowd. Timos seized China Jack by both shoulders, pushed. China Jack stumbled forward, slipping in a puddle of black, tarnished blood. The big Cantonese man fell to the ground with a heavy thump. Methi, Timos began. Then he saw the sheet. Black, rapidly soaking through the white. He stopped. He covered his mouth with his hand. Methy, he whispered into his leathery palm. Well, beloved, what have these sheep done to you? He whipped around to face the throng in the hall, flaring his wings. His eyes blazed hell red. His forked tongue lashed out. Orange-blue flames leapt around his shoulders, making the hot night even hotter, charring the doorframe, threatening to set the whole house ablaze. 
Who shot him? Thimos thundered, fangs gleaming. Who shot this prince, this son of the Oros Basilias, the Mountain King? What son of a bitch shot my brother? Squab Bess lifted her white-fringed eyes, blinking at Timos. She smiled slightly as she brought up a hand, and with one slender finger, tapped her own chest three times. Squab Bess was new, not in town for more than two weeks. She looked Navajo, with high, broad cheekbones and an elegant, narrow nose, but she was pale from toe to top, skin like hand-rubbed paper, and hair the color of smoked ivory. Her eyes were like blood mixed into milky cocoa. The men liked the novelty of her, and they liked that she was good-natured and half-stupid. She hadn't picked up the annoying habit of wheedling for extra money to pay for morphia or abort feigned pregnancies. But none of the men liked her well enough to stop Timos Pietrigo dragging her by her hair down the stairs of Mrs. Jorgensen's house. He threw her into the wide dirt road that ran through the center of town, and she landed hard, rolled in the red dust. Methi Pietrigo's blood was drying in cracked crusts on her hands and face. In the darkness, the patches looked like bruises. She wore nothing but the Saturday night clothes that she was still paying Mrs. Jorgensen off on, a grubby chemise and pink garters and a stained green corset that had come from a girl who died of consumption. Squaw Bess scrambled to her feet. She stumbled a few steps, trying to get her legs under her, but Timos bunched her corset strings in his claws, sent her flying again. She landed in Mrs. Jorgensen's woodpile with a rattle and a clatter, pine shavings tangling her hair. Her hand fumbled to the side and fell on the smooth hickory handle of the splitting maul. She pulled herself up, holding the maul in both hands. When Timos came at her again, she lunged clumsily, the maul whistling before his chest. With a growl, Timos spoke words in Greek that gathered a blast of killing magic. He lifted his hand, wreathed in the translucent blue flame. He barked a command. Magic smashed against her. She should have fallen. Instead, she shook off the magic as if she were brushing aside cobwebs in a barn. She lifted the maul again, bared her teeth. She swung the wedge-shaped head toward him in a long, elegant arc. Timos's eyes widened in astonishment. He managed to lift an arm in time. The attack that would have split his skull only split his cheek. Silvery demon blood smoked, blackening in contact with the steel. Timos roared, staggered, threw a hand forward all at the same time. Grabbing the head end of the maul, he jerked it toward him, and Squaw Bess with it. She fell face forward into the dust. He ground a heavy clawed foot on the middle of her back. He flipped the maul in his hand, and raised it to bury it in her skull. Irini! Pitrogo! The voice came from the edge of the crowd, very loud and clear, as if it had been shouted through a megaphone made of glass. At the words, the muscles in the demon prince's arm twitched and froze. The command came from a tall man. He was sandy-haired and dark-tanned, with the broad, heavy build of an elk. His flesh was covered with pink, puckered scars, his face and throat and arms webbed with thick, welted cords like burst veins. He was Josiah Ash, a warlock in service to the territory, a demon agent of the United States government. He prowled oligartos on Saturday nights, pay nights especially. My spawn brother is dead, warlock. Timos's body remained frozen, but he was able to turn his head toward Ash. Blood streamed down his split cheek. There was the gleam of raw, gray bone. 
The demon's claws clenched and unclenched around the hickory. She murdered him. I mean to have justice. It ain't yours to parcel out, Timos Pirtergo. Ash stepped forward and wrenched the maul from Timos's hand. He looked around at the gathered crowd, raised his voice. Someone run for law yet? Ben's gone for Sheriff Furness, a young man called. Men and demons were bunched separately in muttering masses. Epithets were hissed between them. The men called the demons hell niggers and Satan's breath. The demons called the men simply lambs, Arnie, food. Ash sucked a deep breath through his teeth, settled his hold on the magic that bound Himos Pirtrigo. It was like wrestling a bull without moving a muscle. He couldn't hold the demon long. Demon agent, representative of our interests, Timos sneered, every muscle in his body quivering against Ash's hold. He spoke loudly for the benefit of the demons in the crowd around them. She killed Methi Pirtrogo, well-beloved, and yet I am the one who is held in thrall. She's human. Ash cast a glance in the direction of the girl who knelt in the middle of the road, motionless. Surprising that she made no attempt to run, but perhaps she knew enough of demons to know better of it. China Jack, Mrs. Jorgensen's hired hand, hovered protectively behind her, his eyes darting warily from demon to grumbling demon. I ain't got no jurisdiction over humans. I am the son of the Oros Basilias, Timos roared. The Oros Basilias built this town, and he gives employment to men for a hundred miles around. I am prince of these lands, and have been prince of lands far older. I'm sorry you lost your brother, Ash interrupted gently, bringing his head close to Timos's ear and putting a hand on the demon's broad, trembling shoulder. He spoke in Greek, the ton of the Petrogo clan's homeland. But this is America. There are no princes here. Just as there is no justice for demons, Timos growled back. These shall go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal, a voice blasted over the crowd, making Timos wince as if a rope had been tightened around his guts. The word of the Lord was a powerful weapon, the most powerful weapon a human had against a demon. In the hands of Harwood Furness, the word was blunt and forceful as a sledgehammer pounded against a spike. Sheriff Furness was a badger of a man, short and stocky, with gray side whiskers that flared from the sides of his face. He was both sheriff of Oligirtos and pastor of the town's four-square Baptist church. He held his faith like a shield against the otherworldly wickedness that surrounded him. Other men followed him as he waded into the crowd surrounding Squaw Bess and the demon Timos Pirfrigo, good men of the town who did not carouse on Saturday nights. Cody Jowett, the storekeeper, Edgar Wright, the blacksmith, Sam Hatton, the shipping agent, good four-square Baptist men who had the power of the word at their command in varying degrees of potency. They moved silently around the edges of the crowd, large silver crosses at their throats, black leather Bibles clenched in their strong fists. Men and demons shuffled nervously away from each other, separating into clots like butter from shaken cream. Furness had a rifle slung over his shoulder, a Bible in his back pocket, and a set of softly clanking manacles in his hand. He looked from the demon to the warlock, saw the strain of magic between them. Turn him loose, Ash, Furness said slyly. Furness was a man who liked to give sinners slack to hang themselves with. But he was the law in Oligirtos, so with a soft command and a press of his thumb against the demon's forehead, Ash eased the thrall. The big demon stretched his neck, shoulders, wings. 
He kept his eyes low, avoiding the light that gleamed off the silver cross at Furness's throat. Furness said in a slow drawl, Some trouble at the whorehouse, Themos Piertrigo? Themos inclined his horned head toward Squaw Bess. She shot my brother, he murmured, his voice a barely controlled growl. A little lamb of a human like her killed a rough-and-tumble hell nigger like your brother? Furness let out a mean, throaty guffaw. The sheriff reached down and wrapped a gnarled hand around Squaw Bess's slender arm, pulled her to her feet. She rose without resistance, wiping her nose like a child who's been crying. Furness looked around the crowd challengingly. Anyone seen it happen? The confused explosion of noise was immediate, like a pack of dogs fighting. But she admitted it near enough, covered in blood. No one else coulda. The outraged cries came from demons in the crowd, the Sklavi, the workers that the Mountain King incubated from the souls he stored in his demon bag, child simple creatures with twisted wing stumps and rock-hard slabs of muscle. Right there in the room with him, gun beside her, Furness raised his deep, booming voice against the shrill cacophony. I said, anyone seen it happen? There was a long moment of silence, a moment of rushing night wind and the smell of faraway flames. Timos Piertrigo spat into the dust, raising a hand to wipe a fat runnel of silvery blood from the curve of his jaw. The justice of sheep. He took Ash's hand in his bloody claw, clasped it tight, spoke in a low voice meant only for Ash's ears. I swear to you, warlock, the Oros Basilios will have every soul in this town, and I will have her. Then, in a flash of fangs and talons, the demon leapt at the girl. China Jack folded around her protectively, and Furness stepped forward, bringing his silver-loaded rifle down in one movement. But as Furness pulled the trigger, Timos shot straight up into the night sky, leathery wings unfurling with a thunderous slap, and Furness's rifle blast tore only the space he had once filled. As Timos rose, he gave a cry like nothing Ash had ever heard. An echoing, screeching, roiling cry, a hundred thunderstorms concatenated by a hundred tin roofs. It filled the night, blasting out for miles, rippling like a blast of dynamite. Timos soared up into the blackness, becoming smaller and smaller, a dark patch against darkness. And the cry took a form, a shape, and became a word. Echthra. It was a match to a powder keg. Sklavi bared bright edge incisors and stiffened their claws for the attack. Human men drew knives and guns. Men of the word lifted their crosses and their Bibles. And soon all was a maelstrom of flesh and wings and horns and silver-toed boots. Everywhere there was the sound of things breaking, wood, teeth, bones. The smell of blood blossomed, gunfire and screams, smoke and bright tongues of fire, blue and orange and white. Ash! Furness's voice rose over the din, reedy with tension. Ash, help me for the love of God! Furness and China Jack were fighting their way toward the jail, the pale girl crouching between them. Demons surrounded them, sinewy and snarling, mad with rage. Furness punctuated powerful passages of the word with levered rifle shots of silver, and the Sklavi fell away from him, writhing in pain. But more came, demons in blue denim and red flannel, crazed. Ash swore spells in Greek as he helped Furness drag the girl to the jail. The Oros Basilias came to the Colorado Territory in 1858. He came from Greece, from a mountain called Olegirtos, that still burned with ancient fires deep in its core. Old cities crowded around the base of the mountain. The land was thick with men. 
and that displeased the Mountain King. When the Mountain King came, the Colorado Territory was not overcrowded. There were only a few white men with canvas tents and rifles, and the Zuni and Hopi and Navajo herding sheep and cultivating maize. The Mountain King came to conquer a new land for his clan, the Petrogi, a clan as old as the word that they feared. He found a shagged shard deep in the Sangre de Cristo mountains, dense with metals and precious minerals. With his demon bag, stuffed to brimming with the souls of sinners from the old world, he conjured minions to bring forth the mountain's riches. The Mountain King built a town for humans and demons alike, the dark gem of the Colorado Territory, and he named it Oligirtos, in an act of homage and spite. The city grew and prospered, a church was built, and a school, and a Wells Fargo and Company station, from which stagecoaches left twice every month to take the Mountain King's riches to the great eastern banks for safekeeping. But as the Mountain King prospered, and his sons began to look for other shards to claim for their own, human men grew concerned. The demons raided the flocks of the Navajo, scattering their ewes, and devouring their lambs, and stealing their corn, and the white men who wanted the silver and gold and precious gems for their own petitioned their government, asking why it should be that demons should be allowed to steal the riches of a land that did not belong to them. Once Squaw Bess was locked inside the jail at Oligirtos, with its foot-thick walls of mud, brick, and heavy timber of blue spruce, nothing could get at her unless the place was blasted to pieces by powerful magic, or torn to shreds by razor-sharp claws. But they were dealing with demons, powerful demons, and neither possibility was beyond imagining. Furness laid a heavy iron bar across the door. Ash muttered spells over it. Inside the jail it was dark as a tomb. Furness struck a lucifer match against a timber wall and lit a kerosene lamp. His nose wrinkled at the smell of sulfur, the smell of sin and sorcery. He waved out the match with a decisive movement. It's a damned abomination, a Christian man taking refuge behind the spells of a sin-shackled warlock. Part of the job I was hired for, Ash said, but it was not the part of the job he liked, and that made his words bitter. The sound of guns and shrieks and breaking glass and splintering wood came through the thick walls. You don't like it, you can go out there and do the job you were hired for, keeping the peace. Furness frowned at himself in the lamp's reflector, dabbed blood from a welting place on his forehead. "'My job is to keep peace among men,' Furness said. "'Your job, demon agent, is to keep that filth under control.' He held the handkerchief to his temple, crimson welling through the white. "'How you aim to accomplish that?' "'Dawn's coming up,' Ash said. "'The Sclavi will seek shadow.' "'Sons of bitches breaking up the whole town. Hell niggers got no respect for the law.' They ain't got no respect for law that lets a cold-blooded killer hide behind it, Ash growled. She's a murderer. Doesn't seem like anyone knows that for a fact, Furness said. He glanced over at the girl. She was rocking slightly, humming low to herself. She twisted and untwisted her fingers. You got anything to say for yourself, girl? Furness spoke in a loud voice. You're in a mess of trouble. You better say something. The girl stared at him for a moment. In the flickering lamplight, her eyes glittered like milky opals. She smiled broadly at Furness, nodded her head as if he'd just said something very wise, then went back to counting her fingers. Furness released a contemptuous breath. She's a half-simple dummy. Anything could have happened. 
He could try to force her. She could have been defending herself. He paused. Law says I'm supposed to keep her here until the circuit judge rides up from Santa Fe. And, of course, he'll find some reason to proclaim her innocent. She is human, after all. Ash tried to keep the scorn from his voice, but he did not succeed. You're human too, Ash, Furness snapped at him. It seems like you make a habit of forgetting. Ash sat down in a chair. It creaked. Timos ain't gonna wait around for a circuit judge to ride up from Santa Fe, Ash said. Ekthra neither. Furness's jaw tightened. The Mountain King had three sons, three best beloved offspring. Two, now that Methy was dead. They were born in a single clutch, a single spawn. And in every spawn there was always one, like a cuckoo in a nest of nightingales. It was larger, more intelligent, more powerful, more brutal. Ektra Pirtigo, hammer of the king, heir to the mountain god's domain. Ektra never came to Oligartos. He despised men, and would not consort with them whatsoever. This did not mean he left them alone. He rejoiced to see them weep over his handiwork. A hundred sheep slaughtered in a night, guts and wool scattered across sage-brushed hillsides to glitter and stink in the rising dawn. Indian children snatched and dropped from shadows a mile up, slender brown limbs pulped to mush. White men in their camps ripped into pieces too small to identify as having once been human. It could never be proven that it was Echthra who had done these things. He swooped down and was gone, leaving nothing alive. Ash had tested himself against Echthra only once. It was enough to teach him that he did not want to test himself against Echthra again. He'll destroy this town and everyone in it, Ash whispered, the words proceeding from his silent thoughts. He did not speak Echthra's name. He did not need to. Furness sighed. He was silent for a long time. Well, Warlock, what do you recommend? Ash took a breath, rubbed his forehead, felt the old scars there. Grainy, pre-dawn light was beginning to creep through the barred windows. No one knew what really happened, Ash thought. Even if the girl did seem guilty, there was always the chance that she was innocent. The demons were supposed to abide by human laws, but in this case, they would not, and Ash knew that he could not make them. Right or wrong did not matter. All that mattered now was forestalling a massacre. We have to get her away from Oligirtos, Ash said, finally. If she's still here when the sun goes down, there will be no saving the town. Furness let out a dry bark of a laugh. <laughs> there will be no saving us if Echthra comes for us past nightfall, he said. You and me have a better chance against Themos and Echthra than anyone in a hundred miles. Furness rubbed his chin. In the cell, the girl hummed louder. Where do you propose we take her? Up the mountain, Ash said. Furness turned his head toward the lamp's light, his hand rising to the cross at his throat. God-fearing men don't go up the mountain, Furness said. The Mountain King will meet us at the Gazing Stone if I ask it, Ash said. It is powerful, and its magic is very old. The Mountain King respects it. If it proclaims her innocent, he will accept its verdict. Furness was silent, but his lip was twisted in disgust. God-fearing men did not go up the mountain. It was like hell in reverse. Things got uglier and more sinful the higher one climbed. A man's mortal soul was constantly in danger in Oligirtos. Up the mountain, the perils were much worse. He should accept the verdict of the law, Furness muttered, like everybody else. Ash stared at him quietly, steadily. He knew that Furness was only protesting a point of principle. There was nothing else they could do. He waited for Furness to speak again. 
And what if that damn rock don't proclaim her innocent? Furness said. What if it says she's guilty? Then God help her, Ash said. Smoke made the morning air hazy. The sun hung on the lip of the surrounding hills, the sky dark blue behind and light blue ahead, slender pine trees, sharp black ink strokes in cold shadow. Ash and Furness walked slowly through the town, surveying the damage. Watering troughs, wrecked into kindling, windows smashed, a delivery wagon overturned and burning. Mrs. Jorgensen's had taken the brunt of it. The front porch of the establishment had been smashed, and there were long, deep gashes where claws had torn into the weathered wood. The oil paper had been ripped from the windows, and tatters fluttered in the morning air. Inside, Ash could see Mrs. Jorgensen and China Jack moving around through the wreckage of the saloon, their shoes making clinking sounds as they walked through drifts of broken glass, bottles, tables. "'No one dead, thank the Lord,' said Cody Jowett, who met the sheriff and the warlock as they were saddling up two skittish roans that had been locked in stables through the night, the only horses left in Oligirtos, it seemed. The gamey little shopkeeper had a damp rag over a swollen purple eye, and there were garish bright streaks down his front where he'd bled through his homespun shirt. The filth busted up the town pretty good, but the power of the word turned them back. The honest folk of the town stayed barred up in the church. Praise Jesus, Furness said. They won't be back while the sun's up, Ash said, squinting against the rising brightness as he smoothed his stirrup. But they may be back after dark. After dark? Joe had paled, leaning against the side of a building. He ran a hand over his mouth and looked hard at Furness. You mean it ain't over? I can't say for sure, Furness said. This ain't what we supplicated for, Joe said fiercely, his eyes moist with betrayal and confusion. This ain't what we... No, it ain't. Furness cut him off quickly and loudly. She ain't. She's a busted up whore, and this is a whole different thing. She ain't no part of what we prayed for. Then, more gently... You gotta have faith, brother. Our prayers will be heard. The Lord moves mysterious. You know that. What are you going to do with her? We're taking her up the mountain. Joe had looked between Ash and Furness. Suspicion crept into his eyes, and doubt. God-fearing men don't go up the mountain, Joe had said. God-fearing men don't know the way up the mountain. Ash knows the way, Furness said. Joe had glared at Ash. He spat in the dust. "'Going up the mountain with warlocks and whores. "'I don't see how any of it's much better than footing demons in our midst. "'Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knelt in the fiery furnace, "'and the power of their faith shielded them from being consumed.' "'Furness's voice was as coldly edged as a steel blade. "'His eyes glowed as they bore down on Joet, "'seeking to seize his squinting, darting gaze "'like a coyote snaps a field mouse in its jaws. "'The power and force of his words made the air vibrate and hum. "'My faith is strong, brother.' My faith is strong and terrible and mighty, and it is but a pitiful cinder held to the blazing noonday sun of our Lord's might. Where is your faith, brother? Joe had fell to his knees, dirty hands clasped before his forehead. Praise the Lord, Brother Furness, praise the Lord, Joe had sobbed, rocking back and forth. My faith is strong, Brother Furness. I don't presume to question. Furness grunted a kind of mean satisfaction. If we ain't back before dark... Get the town people into the church and keep the doors barred. Furness paused. And Brother Joet? Yes. You tell them all to keep praying. With only two horses between them, Ash and Furness knew the girl would have to ride with one of them. 
Furness swore he wouldn't suffer a harlot on his saddle. So she rode out of town before Ash, her back pressed up against his chest. She was too lightly clothed for the trip, so he'd wrapped one of the rough woolen jailhouse blankets around her shoulders. But it seemed this was not enough. She pressed back against him, seeking his warmth with the forwardness of a spoiled cat. He was very strongly aware of the contours of her back, of very sharp shoulder bones and prominent knob-like vertebrae. He couldn't imagine how she'd made a living with a body that had so many hard, uncomfortable angles and edges. The morning air was frigid and biting. While the Hirtos was more than 4,000 feet above the rich, flat San Jose Valley, but they would have to climb another 4,000 to arrive at the mountain's caldera, where the gazing stone stood. As they rode, the girl played with the horse's mane, combing the strands between her fingers. Ash could hear her humming to herself, but this close, with her head pressed back against his chest, he realized that she was not humming. She was chanting low in her chest, and he could just make out words. They were very slow, every syllable elongated, like pulled taffy. Words in Greek. Once again, once again, once again, returning. The words made Ash's guts clench, but they couldn't have anything to do with him, he thought. The girl knew nothing. Nonetheless, he laid a nervous hand on the side of her head, whispered a charm to make her sleep. But the magic that should have flowed through his fingertips seemed to stop at the boundary of her smooth white flesh crackled under his touch like ants. He was startled. He had never felt such a thing before. But then he remembered. He remembered when Timos had attacked her, had thrown killing magic against her. It had brushed past her like cigar smoke blown in her face. You're romantic, Ash whispered into the back of her head, astonished. She stopped chanting for a moment, and Ash was sure he heard her laugh, a very small sound, like the wind through reeds. She lifted one of her hands, and with a milky-white fingertip, she traced the line of one of the long, worm-like scars that ran along Ash's deeply tanned forearm. Her touch made the scar ache. Ash jerked his arm away. Once again, she mouthed, her breath forming the words. Then she was silent for a while. And then the chanting, soft and sweet and strange, began again. Outside of town, about a half-mile past the hollowed ground of the town's iron-fenced graveyard, they came upon Methy's body. The Sclavi must have dragged it there to protect it from the violence at Mrs. Jorgensen's. It was propped up against a large, smooth granite boulder, wings extended outward from the body with formal elegance. Three dead lambs were arranged at Methy's feet. Their entrails laid in looped curlicues. The dead demon's body was painted with the blood of the animals. Delicate, reverent traceries. A braid of wildflowers looped down from his horns across his puzzled forehead. Scattered around him were silver and gold coins, glinting in the rising sunlight, and there were half-empty bottles of whiskey piled up at his sides, and the yolks of smashed chicken eggs smeared the rock. The flies would have a feast later. Horrible, Furness said, lifting his cross out of his shirt and kissing it. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He kicked his horse to make it pass the scene quickly, but Ash pulled his own horse up sharply. He climbed down and went to Methy's body. Before he touched it, he steepled his hands before his forehead and made a shallow bow. For God's sake, Furness exploded, seeing the gesture. For God's sake, Ash, have you no human shame? 
but Ash paid no attention. He was already examining the wound in Methy's throat. The ragged splaying of black flesh showed the bullet had exited from the front. There was no doubt of it. Pushing aside the demon's blood-smeared coat, Ash saw another large hole in the breast of Methy's starched cotton shirt. Ash leaned Methy forward, the body slumping stiff and heavy. The wound in his back was small, where the bullet had entered just between the wings. The big wound was in the front, where the bullet had torn out his heart. "'Come on, Ash!' Furness barked. "'There's hardly time to get up the mountain before dark as it is. Leave that cursed thing!' Ash gently settled the demon's body back against the granite. He did not climb back into the saddle. He used a leather thong to tightly bind the girl's hands to the saddle horn, then looped the reins forward over the nag's head. He began to walk. "'The path is steep from here anyway,' he said, before Furness could comment. "'And I walk fast.' The trail that snaked up the mountain had been worn out of the bare, weathered granite over hundreds of years by the feet of Navajo medicine men on their way to consult the Gazing Stone. The location was as sacred to their people as it was shunned by men of the word. All along the trail were displays, left by the mountain's human reverence. Signs and fetishes hung from tree limbs, from the dead, dry roots that jutted from the crumbling cliff face. Twisted charms of pine, bound with deer skin and smeared with old blood, swayed softly in the bright, searing heat of rising midday. Piles of animal bones that had been smoked over resinous fires until they gleamed black as polished ebony were stacked in cairns. Empty socketed skulls peered silently at the travelers as they passed. As they climbed the mountain trail, the number of strange charms increased. The more of them they passed, the more nervous Furness got. He hunched over in his saddle, a glaring bear, teeth gritted. "'Damn them hell-bound heathens!' Furness rumbled, tearing at some braided willow-bark strips that hung across the path in a drooping, bead-glittering webwork. "'May they all rot in the lowest pit of Satan's devising!' "'Cody Joet said something back in Oligirtos, Ash said as he walked by Furness's stirrup. "'He said you and your flock performed a supplication.' "'Our prayers are between the Lord and ourselves,' Furness said, not looking down at the warlock. "'Joet don't know when to shut up.' "'There's strange things afoot,' Ash said. "'That girl, for one thing. She's a mantic.' "'I don't know that word. "'An amantic is someone who can't be touched by magic. "'Magic just washes around them, useless.' "'So what? "'Someone like that don't show up out of nowhere for no reason.' Furness pulled his horse up short. The beast snorted surprise. Furness's eyes were round and wide and full of indignation. "'You ain't saying you think she was sent?' Furness curled a lip in disgust. "'You think that whore is ascending?' "'Ain't but one person in ten million born a mantic. That's all I'm saying,' Ash shrugged. "'Lucky trait to have if you're called to kill a demon.' Furness looked down at Ash, his eyes glowing with sudden rage. "'That's enough!' His voice was large and booming. It echoed off the sides of the mountain. "'Now you listen to me, Josiah Ash, you sin-shackled son of Baal. She ain't the one I sent for. The Lord don't send whores and dummies, even if they are romantic, or whatever you call it. And the fact that you even suppose that he might just tells me what a goddamn low creature you are.' "'Maybe she ain't the one you sent for,' Ash replied softly. "'But you did send for someone, didn't you?' Furness stared at the demon agent for a long time. 
Then he clucked to his horse and rode on, not saying another word. Furness had not answered the question, but his silence was as good as assent. Furness and his flock had done a supplication, pulled the power of their faith and their fear, focused Furness's horrible will. Ash had no way of knowing what they had supplicated for, but he could guess. The destruction of the sons of the mountain king. The supplication would create a sending, a prayer made flesh, and they would believe it to be the work of God. Ash knew better. Ash did not believe in God. He had walked away from such convictions long ago. His father had once prayed that he would enter the priesthood. Instead, Ash had left to study with a bitter old Mexican curandero who taught him the twin arts of cynicism and syncretism. Faith in God was simply another kind of magic, no more, no less. Still, supplications directed against demons could be violently powerful and deadly, especially if conducted by a focused, hate-filled man of the word with an adoring and tight-knit flock, like Furness. Supplications were illegal. Demons were legal settlers, like anybody else, and laws had been written to protect them. But what did Furness care about that? Just as Echthra's attacks on humans couldn't be proved, Sendings couldn't be proved either. An eye for an eye. The thought of it made Ash angrier and angrier as he walked behind Furness's horse. He gripped the reins tightly, feeling the leather creak. Seems you make a habit of forgetting you're a human, Furness had said. I am human, Ash muttered to himself. I uphold the law. I don't send destruction against creatures whose beliefs I don't agree with. But you use creatures who cannot defend themselves for your own ends. The thought, fleeting and guilty, sent a crawl up Ash's spine. He looked back at the girl riding the horse. Her white face was uptilted, and she was bathing it in the warmth of the midday sun. Even if she did kill Methy Piertigo, do you really believe she knew what she was doing? Are you taking her up the mountain for justice, or are you taking her up to finish what you started three years ago, for another chance? Ash! Furness's loud bark made Ash jerk his head up. Furness had halted his horse and was looking at the clear azure sky, hand shading his eye. As Ash came up beside him, Furness pointed to a ridge. Something just lighted up there, he said grimly, big and black. Themos or Ekhra. They're watching us. Ash said nothing for a moment, then he shrugged. We'd better keep moving then, he said. The Mountain King's gate had been built where the path ran between two massive outcroppings of granite. Beyond the gate, the trail led directly to the Gazing Stone, and beyond that, to the deep, cool caves in which the Oros Basilias and his minions made their home. In the narrow pinch between boulder and cliff, the Mountain King's demons had constructed a tall, forbidding gate of sturdy pitch pine and rough hempen rope twisted with threads of silver and stag hair for magical protection. The gate was arrayed with bones, animal bones, demon bones, topped with the skulls of transgressing Spavi. A warning to humans and non-humans alike. This was the Mountain King's domain. It was full-on day when they arrived at the gate, and the air was hot and still and buzzing with the sound of cicadas and clicking pine beetles. There were no Sklavi to open the gate. They suffered the day in shadows and darkness. On the only other occasion Ash had come to the gate, he had come at midnight. Under the light of the full moon, the gate had seemed terrible. In full sun it seemed even worse. 
The harsh light illuminated every strip of rotting flesh on the bones, every fat, bloated, feasting fly, every gleam of malignant, tarnished silver that reinforced the gate's magical power. It was great sorcery, and beyond the gate, infinitely greater powers waited. Being this close to them again made the webwork of scars that covered Ash's body ache with remembrance and longing. Three years ago, he had come to this gate to ask the Mountain King to teach him. He hoped to learn the ways of demons, the magic of creating living creatures out of conscience from wandering souls, the power to assemble life. The memory of that windy midnight three years ago was always at the forefront of Ash's brain, like a hummed melody that would not recede, that intruded at the worst moments. The gazing stone, its luminescent etched veins glowing faintly in the moonlight. The mountain king, squat and gray, his ancient withered body wreathed in forceful glory. Even mighty Echthra, wings outflared in reverence, seemed soft and feeble beside him. I will teach you, the mountain king had said, if you can kill Echthra, my oldest son, Hammer of the King. Ash had not doubted that he could kill Echthra. He believed in his own invincibility in those days, in the way of a man who has never been scarred. He considered the offer for a long time. In the end, he had shaken his head. I will not seek the life of your own son to serve my own ends, he had told the Mountain King, thinking that it was the right answer. Then you shall never gain the knowledge you seek, the Mountain King said, with an affinity of contempt. And in the span of a drawn breath, Echthra had flown against him, a furious coalescence of night itself, rending Ash's flesh to bleeding ribbons. Ash would have died that day if the Mountain King had not raised his desiccated hand at the precise moment in which Ash's life was balanced on the razor tip of Echthra's claws. Return when you have learned the difference between cowardice and conscience, the Mountain King had said, and left Ash to crawl back down the mountain retracing the ancient trail in blood with every step. Ash! Ash! Furness was yelling at him again, and shaking him this time. The old man had climbed down from his horse and was looking into Ash's face with real concern. Ash lifted his hat off his head, ran a hand over his sweating face, and up over the aching scars of his scalp. I'm sorry, Ash said. You were standing there all froze up. I thought that damned gate did something strange to you. No, Ash said. I'm all right. Furness looked up at the gate. His whole body betrayed his loathing for it. His ribs heaved rapid and shallow. How do you open it? Ash gestured to a tablet of slate that lay in the center of the path before the gate. It was broad and flat, and at each of its four corners was set a rough chunk of gemstone from deep within the mountain. Ash stepped onto the tablet summoning the power up through his feet to suffuse his body. His old wounds flamed with agony. He gritted his teeth. Warm air streamed around him, fragrant with unfamiliar incense from distant lands. He spoke low words, resonant words in Greek. We come to the gazing stone. We bring one to judgment. The words echoed against the rocks surrounding them, booming and shuddering. When the last echo had finally died, the gates swung outward on hinges of rusted steel, old mine car axles that had been put to a different use. Flies swirled up in black clouds as the doors moved. 
Once again, once again, once again, the creak of the gate seemed to say, returning, returning. Afternoon was lengthening into long purple shadows by the time they came to ridge, overlooking deep, smooth, bowl-shaped caldera in which the gazing stone stood. Furness climbed down from his horse and stared down into the bull's mysterious blue hollows for a long time, his face wrinkled with astonishment and awe. "'Lord, have mercy,' he said softly. "'It's a man!' The gazing stone was in the figure of a man, a giant over fifty feet tall, standing with his face upraised to the sun. The stone body was weathered and blunted, and the sharpness of his features had eroded in places. He was, Ash knew, very ancient, older than the Mountain King, and more powerful. This comforted Ash. Who made that? Furness stroked his gray side whiskers, shook his head. How could they? The Indians call it the least of the spirit walkers, Ash said. They were mighty beings who walked the earth thousands of years ago. This one grew tired, and he stopped to rest here. Furness cast a nervous glance up at the sky. No birds singing, he said. No sounds at all. Ash, I'm worried about what I've seen back there. We're being watched. I know it. I'm sure we are, Ash said, but we are safer now than we were before we passed through the gate. Safe? On the Mountain King's land? The Gazing Stone was here long before the Mountain King, long before anyone came to this place at all. It is an ancient magical artifact, protected by territorial statute. The Mountain King must allow us a modus vivendi to travel to and from it. You're a fool, Furness spat. You always speak of the demons like they will respect your laws. Ash regarded him coolly. I behave according to the expectation that they will, he said. I give anyone, man or demon, the benefit of the doubt. Ash paused. Besides, you're a fine one to speak so high and mighty of lawbreakers, temporal or moral. Furness barked a graveyard laugh. Huh. That idiot Joet will get us all hung, Furness said. He did not climb back into his saddle, but walked beside Ash, leading his horse as Ash did. They picked their way down the wide, steep path that led to the floor of the caldera. Furness kicked at stones as he walked. He looked over his shoulder at the girl, looked at her for a long time, before turning back and shaking his head. You've needled me, Ash, Furness admitted, with that wicked blasphemy you planted in my mind. Ash chuckled. <laughs> Which wicked blasphemy would that be? Implying that the whore could be ascending. I think she killed Methy, Ash said. That's what you and your flock supplicated for, isn't it? For the destruction of the Mountain King and his sons? Yeah, but... You prayed for murder. You prayed for something filthy and vile and immoral. Why shouldn't the agent of your will be something as depraved and as low as your motivations? Furness shook his head with a jerk, a denying movement. You're just trying to mix things up, Furness said. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Ash grinned slightly without amusement. What about the next verse? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Seems like the prophet Isaiah has us both tarred. Furness barked a sudden laugh, slapped Ash on the shoulder. <laughs> Why, you are a slick sinner, Josiah Ash. I can read as good as any, better than most, 
Ash said, smile fading. It's the verse after next you need to be reminded of. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice for the innocent. Ash paused. If you ever care to try me, I can match every line you can pull from that book, and usually with a line that contradicts it. He lifted a shoulder as if shaking something off his back. My father was a missionary. Tanned that foolishness on my hide. Furness frowned, but he didn't say anything. They carried on a long time in silence, walking side by side. Furness stared straight ahead, his face clenched and unreadable. After a long time, Furness took a long, deep breath in, then let out a long sigh. <sighs> so you think she did it? A dummy, sweet as milk? I know she did it. Methy was shot from behind, both times. Then we're bringing her to a horrible place to be slaughtered, like a sacrifice to the mountain god. Furness shuddered. God damn it, I can't abide it. Even if she is guilty, this ain't right. Ash, this ain't justice, this is barbarity, this is idolatry. The gazing stone may still say she didn't do it, Ash said tiredly. His own guilt prickled at him, itching across old scars. That there was some reason we don't know about. If that's so, the Mountain King will respect it. Furness fell silent again. It wasn't like you say, Furness muttered, after a while. It wasn't ugly and mean like you say. We supplicated the Lord for relief, that he would put a stop to the sin and arrogance of those who stood against him. We didn't pray for a murder like this, I swear to you. Ash did not answer. He kept his eyes on the path before him. Ascending? It ain't like that. Furness continued, his words slow and halting. I saw a sending once, Ash, a real, honest sending. An angel in white, so white it wasn't white. It was just light, pure, like the kind of light that bounces off a mirror. And the shadows of it were colors, the deepest, brightest, richest colors you ever saw. You see, my folks, they died. Died of epidemic when I was small. We had settled out a claim in the Dakotas, a hundred miles from anywhere, and there I was, and they were both dead, wrapped up in blankets. Furness paused, clearing his throat angrily. He spat in the dust, scratched the corner of his eye. The angel put her hand on my head, Furness said. She put her hand on my head, and my whole body filled up with light, and I wasn't afraid anymore. And the whole world was just like it had rained, fresh and new and whole. After that, my life belonged to the Lord, and the Lord has guided my steps, Furness said. He calls me to cleanse wicked things from this world. I can never make it as perfect as that moment. But Lord help me, I can make it better, Ash. I can make it better. There was a moment of silence. The sounds of the horse's feet clopping against the rocks of the trail seemed strangely loud. And then, a hulking dark mass swept down from someplace high in the trees. Both men whirled, just in time to see the monstrous figure smash against the girl and the horse broadside, toppling the roan to the rocky ground in a cloud of red dust. The animal screamed and thrashed, steel shoes gleaming. Timos. The demon prince's attack was meant to sweep the girl from the saddle, but the tight leather thongs Ash had used to bind her hands to the saddle horn had held too well. The demon had taken down everything, girl, horse, saddle and all. The demon had her pinned to the ground, but the horse was thrashing and plunging beside them wildly, preventing the big demon from getting a grip on the girl's spilling white hair. Ash lifted his hands from his knees to his shoulders, summoning his strength. 
focusing it, he barked the command of Thrall, clear and resonant. Irini, Pitrogo! But here the command had no effect. In the domain of the Mountain King, Thimosa's freedom was unhindered by Ash's governance. Ash clenched his teeth, helplessness washing over him. His hand went to the long silver knife at his belt, its certain inefficacy making him feel worse, not better. The sound of a shot echoed against the curving walls of the ancient caldera. Ash sucked in his breath. The panicked, thrashing horse jerked, then stilled, blood blossoming over the white star on its forehead. Furness calmly levered his rifle, ejecting the spent cartridge. Then he turned the rifle on Timos. The blast clipped Timos's wing. The demon leapt up, cursing as the wound smoked and sizzled. Furness always packed his casings with silver. The girl lay on the ground, her hands stretched above her head, still tied to the saddle horn. One of her wrists was badly broken. It was twisted at an horrific angle. God damn you, Timos! Ash barked at the demon as he climbed over the dead horse, pulling a silver knife from his belt. He cut the leather thongs and helped the girl sit up. She whimpered like a beaten puppy, curling herself into his chest, cradling her broken wrist. We are here under a modus vivendi. We are here to consult the gazing stone. We are here under the protection of the Oros Basilias. Timos let out a long laugh, swayed. He was thoroughly, wildly drunk. You think I'm going to let you reach the gazing stone? Give it even the slightest chance to judge her innocent? I won't allow even the possibility. That bitch will be torn into a thousand pieces for what she did to my brother. Furness calmly pressed fresh cartridges into his rifle, levered it. He leveled it at Timos. Timos smiled at him, a broad smile of pleasure and anticipation. And you, man of the word, he said, the scars my elder brother gave that arrogant warlock are nothing compared with what I'm going to do to you. Furness spat in the dust, grinned. You don't say. Timos moved fast, a winged blur stinking of whiskey and blood. Furness staggered back, his eyes widening as Timos grabbed the rifle and tossed it aside. Bringing up his clawed hand, he slashed down, opening Furness's cheek and throat. Furness sunk to his knees, blood vomiting from the wound, soaking his grizzled whiskers, matting his shoulders and chest. His fingers fumbled at the gash in his throat. His hands found his silver cross. He clutched it as he sunk forward, choking. Ash scrambled for the rifle. He seized it in trembling hands, fired wildly at Timos. The load of silver blew a meaty chunk of the demon's thigh into a spray of glittering black. Timos stumbled, fell to the ground, screaming rage. Ash levered the weapon, steadying himself for another shot, when surprise froze him. The girl was walking toward Furness, limping, her broken hand cradled against her body. Stay back! Ash roared at her. But she limped on, inexorably, to where Furness lay coughing and jerking. When she reached him, she fell to her knees. She touched her good hand to his forehead. White light enveloped them, coruscating and harsh, light too bright to look into. Ash raised an arm over his eyes, squinting hard. She was form and motion and outline, nothing more. But he swore he could see wings blossoming from her back, broad white wings, crumpled like a butterfly's at first, stretching to silky smoothness. After a moment, he saw her rise, leaving Furness. She went to where Timos lay curled in the dust. He screamed up at her, words in Greek too ancient and debased for Ash to understand. He could only feel the rage, the terror of them. The girl gathered the demon into her arms. 
With the lightness of a blown bit of down, she rose into the sky, glimmering like a star returning to its home. There was a moment of breath-held silence, in which the air trembled. Then, from high above, from within the light, a shriek, a horrible, soul-rent shriek, a shriek of agony, and ending. Then there was a crack like lightning, and rain began to fall around them. The rain was thick, viscous, silvery black, demon blood, fat splashing drops pounded into the dust, a rushing, gory storm covering all the land around them with stinking stickiness. And she was gone. Furness knelt, face up to the fading brilliance, eyes closed. The black smoking rain had painted his face with gory rivulets. Ash fell to his knees beside the old man. He peered at Furness's face. There was nothing more than a raw red scratch where Timosa's razor claws had laid the flesh open. Praise the Lord, Furness whispered, not opening his eyes. Praise the Lord. For a long time, Ash knelt beside him. He did not pray. He stared at the slimy smear of coagulating demon blood that had mixed with the red dust into a stinking paste. Big black flies buzzed around them, loud and insistent. They crawled over Ash's face, over his blood-soaked shirt, itching and sticky and horrible. He swatted at them with his hat, but they just kept returning, crawling all over him, as if he were already a corpse. Timos was dead. Ash rose. He went to the saddle of his dead horse, took out his canteen, used a handful of water to rub the demon blood from his face. He felt his scars tingling under his fingertips, looked at the scars along his arms. Ash handed the canteen to Furness. Furness took it, set it on the ground, forgot about it. His eyes were fixed and staring. He stared at a place somewhere right before his eyes, as if a great truth were hovering there unseen. It was wonderful, Furness whispered. What's wonderful about it? Ash growled. He bent down and picked up the canteen. He unscrewed the top and shook the rest of the water onto Furness's head, throwing the empty canteen to the ground with a loud clank. Think about it, man of the word. Now the mountain king has lost two sons. Ekthra has lost two brothers, and we've got no one to present at the gazing stone. Furness smiled. It doesn't matter, demon agent. The hell it doesn't! Ash put a hand on his hip, another over his mouth. He scanned the area around them. Furness's horse was standing a ways off, flicking its tail nervously. The other horse was matted with fat, black flies. We will go to the gazing stone, Furness said. We will meet with the mountain king, and I will stop Ekthra. Ash stared at Furness, as if the old man had gone mad. And indeed, Furness's eyes did gleam strangely, as if the light from the vanished girl had taken up residence in his skull and was beaming out into the world. "'You can't beat him,' Ash said. "'Yes, I can,' Furness said. "'Now I know the truth. "'I am the sending.' Ash blinked at him. "'You're not, Furness.' "'Yes, I am,' she told me. "'The Lord has touched me again. "'He has blessed me with his light. "'He has braced me to a task that I should have known was mine from the beginning.' Furness paused, closing his eyes again. Ash reached down and picked up the old man by the front of his shirt, shaking him. Stop this! Ash spat the words into his face. Hector, I will kill you! Furness stared into Ash's eyes. You only say that because you could not kill him, Furness said. 
The fabric of the old man's shirt slipped from Ash's grasp. The old man chuckled as he brushed blood and dust from his clothes. It'll be all right, Josiah, Furness said, putting a hand on the taller man's shoulder. Have faith. Furness climbed onto his horse. The beast danced away from the smell of blood that was still heavy on his clothing, but Furness tightened the reins and urged the beast down toward the floor of the caldera, toward the grassed, flat plain in which the gazing stone stood. Furness! Ash ran after the man and the horse, but when Furness came to the edge of the smooth grassland, he kicked the skitterish beast into a canter toward the gazing stone. The horse responded with a burst of nervous speed. A dark shadow detached itself from one of the surrounding peaks. It passed over the sun like a swift, small cloud, darkening the ground on which Ash stood. Ash looked up, cringing, fearing the worst, finding it. Echthra. There was no time. Ash kicked his boots off his feet, stripping off his socks, and grinding his bare feet down into the earth. He gathered up handfuls of the dust that was saturated with Timos's blood, whispered over it, asserted the sympathetic bond between the cooling blood of the dead demon and the raging blood of his older sibling. Ash let the dust slide through his hands, inscribing the most powerful charm he knew in a ragged circle, a medical lodge stone that would attract the energies of all living things within the earth and above it. Taking the silver knife from his belt, he slashed the palm of his own hand, wincing as he clenched his fist to squeeze blood from the wound. He placed his cut hand in the center of the circle, mixing his blood with that of Timos, pressing the dust of that place into his flesh. Then he stood, straddling the circle, and drew the power up through himself, soaked it into himself like rain into parched earth. And then, bringing his hands together fist to palm, he shouted the familiar command of Thrall in a voice that commanded every molecule of air in the caldera. Irini! What had been an inky shadow against the cobalt-blue sky suddenly froze, dropped, tumbling and twisting, and landed in the tall grass, fifty feet short of the gazing stone. Ash buckled, crying out at the sudden jolt, as Ekthra, captured within the web of his magic, struggled against him. But Ash had to hold him, and he had to get close enough to kill him. Taking step by step, he placed each bare foot carefully before the other. It was like walking through molasses. Each time he lifted his foot, the energy he was pulling from the earth pulled back on him. His muscles screamed, but he kept himself moving forward toward Ekthra. You have returned. Ekthra's thoughts, bell clear and malicious, echoed through his skull. And it seems you are willing to kill me now. I greet you as a brother. I am no brother of yours, Ash hissed. Step and another step. He could see Ekthra now, struggling in the tall grass. But you are. You bear the scars I gave you. You came seeking revenge. I came seeking justice, Ash said, another step the earth pulling against him like pleading hands. Ekthra could not move, but he could laugh, and he laughed loud, a mockingly throaty laugh that resonated against the walls of the bowl-shaped space. <laughs> you came to bring the sending to me, so that I might kill it, that I might shatter the hopes and dreams of the arrogant sheep who were no more than food to us, and you will be rewarded, as you hoped to be rewarded three years ago. Ash came to stand over Ekthra's bound form, struggling in the grass. Ekthra was huge, 
well over seven feet and built like a bull. His mouth was twisted with polished, tusk-like fangs, and the curving horns from his brow were capped with hammered silver. His naked flesh shone with the sweat of exertion. The air moved by his wings was enough to make a man unsteady on his feet. When he saw Ash standing over him, he bared his teeth. "'Kill me quickly, demon agent,' he spoke aloud now, his voice gravelly and low enough to rumble the earth beneath him. "'You will not have another chance.' Ash drew his long silver knife, just one stroke to the heart. He gripped the weapon tight in his good hand. I didn't come back for revenge, Ash snarled. I came back to save the people of Olihirtos. I came to do my job. And then he raised the knife. Too late, Ethra said, somewhat ruefully, as a heavy weight fell on Ash's back, driving him to the ground. Something cold and metallic pressed against his neck. Furness's cross. He could feel the shape of it. It burned like acid. Ash felt the power of his lodestone charm shatter. The energy he had so carefully gathered and struggled to hold scattered into a million pieces like released birds. Furness, don't! Ash gasped. But Furness was already moving toward Echthra. And Echthra, freed from the thrall, was moving toward him, running on all four limbs like an animal. His wings folded back. His eyes gleamed murder. Furness stopped, opened his arms, caught the big demon in an embrace, holding him as one would hold a grieving brother. He held tight, even as Echthra's claws raked his back, rending it bloody. He held tight, the silver cross in his fist, pressed against the back of Echthra's neck. Light blossomed around them again, shifting and shimmering, white flames tipped with blue and orange, and in the brightness, Ash saw Furness and Echthra become one glowing molten mass. Echthra screamed, his scream becoming higher and higher, thinner and thinner as they both faded, like a chunk of magnesium dropped into a cold running stream, into the slanting orange light of sunset. When they were gone, Ash saw something glint in the dust. It was Furness's silver cross. Silence, vast, rich, deep. Ash stretched himself out in the green grass, staring up at the orange and purple-streaked sky for a long time, his whole body numb with effort. After a while, Furness's horse, its reins loose and dangling, came over to sniff at him. It snorted, satisfied that he was still alive, and wandered off to crop at some of the tender grass. Ash sat up. He stood slowly, painfully. His whole body felt as if his bones had been boiled in a cauldron and were still cooling. He limped across the grassy plain until he reached the gazing stone. He stopped at its base, staring up at it silhouetted against the blue curtain of night, drawing over the top of the caldera. He placed his hand on the gazing stone, leaning against it, whispering to it. Why? he asked. It did not whisper back. You have done well, demon agent, the mountain king said. He spoke in Greek, his word cadent and precise. The old demon was sitting cross-legged at the base of the gazing stone, eyes closed. He was small and gnarled, his skin a mottled gray. He looked like an outcropping of the stone itself. I have done nothing, Ash whispered. You have brought her back to me. Her? The ancient demon lifted his chin toward the stars, rising in the deepening blue evening. Ash looked up, and he saw the white girl, the one they had called Squaw Bess, perched like a cat 
on the very top of the gazing stone. Her maggot-white wings trailed down from her back like the ruffles of a satin gown. She was naked, her curves gently gleaming, shadowed with every rich gem-like color that could be imagined. Arethia, infinitely cherished, greatest of my creations. The Mountain King smiled, his voice tender. Raised in darkness to be the prop of my old age. I had to leave her behind when I came to this land. She was not old enough or strong enough to cross the saltwater sea. I created new sons to soothe my grief, and they amused me for a time. But they could not heal my greatest heartbreak. He paused. And without you, my son, she never would have come home. I am not your son, Ash said. His voice was trembling. The Mountain King turned golden eyes on him, filled with mock surprise. Once you wish to be welcomed as one. The love you've shown for your sons is small indeed, Ash spat. You cover their murder in glory. That is the way of demons. We sacrifice what is dear to us because it is dear to us. If you had been able to renounce your love of justice, of so-called human decency, if you had been able to do that three years ago, you would know this. Ash said nothing. He stared up at Arethia, his eyes locked with hers. Her face was so tender, as tender as it had been when he had believed her human. It was the power of the supplication that allowed her to cross the saltwater sea, the Mountain King said. The power of human faith, greater than all my arts. The sheep have prayed for their death, and they've received it in abundance. They will receive more. Furness was the preacher, the heart of the congregation, Ash swallowed hard. Without him, the people of Olegirtos will despair and fail. There will be no one in Olegirtos to stand against me. The Mountain King smiled. No one at all. Ash clenched Furness's cross tightly in his fist. He felt the power of it even now. The power of perfect conviction. He now understood where it came from. He now saw how it was born. He raised his hand toward the Mountain King slightly, a tiny movement. Perhaps you're wrong about that, Ash said softly. The Mountain King hissed, his eyes narrowing. He cringed away from Ash's hand. With a rippling cry, Arethia swooped down from the top of the gazing stone, landing before him without a sound. He looked into her eyes, gleaming like opals. Will you be the one who finally kills me? he asked, still clenching the silver cross hard, pressing its sharp edges into the wound of his hand. The girl shook her head. She fell to her knees before him. She took his hand in hers. She pressed her lip to the back of his hand, and the touch of them made his whole body shiver. Three years ago, you came seeking wisdom. The Mountain King's voice was rich and smoky in the gathering blue darkness. You are not willing to pay the price, I asked. But now you have returned my daughter to my arms, and you have led the fattest sheep up the mountain to me, and you have helped make the death of my strongest sons. You have paid the price three times over. You may stay and learn the greatest of my skills. And once you have learned, you may go and use them as you will. Arethia, infinitely cherished, opened Ash's bleeding hand. It was amazing how claws could be used with such gentleness, Ash thought. The silver cross dropped to the ground. She pressed his open palm to her cheek, closed her eyes, nuzzled her soft cheek into his touch. He felt the wound across his palm knit 
and raise into a new scar, one more scar given to him by a demon. Ash jerked his hand away. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice for the innocent, Ash murmured, hearing Furness's voice speaking the words. The girl looked up at him. A silvery tear streaked down her cheek. No one is innocent, demon agent. Her voice was as clear and beautiful as an angel's. It vibrated through him, a promise, and an inspiration, and an obligation, and he realized that he had something new to seek something that might take him a very long time to find. The warlock turned away. He climbed on the dead man's horse, and without looking back, he rode into the gathering darkness, alone, back down the mountain. And welcome back. That's the one thing about Oliertos. Too many damn demons. Anyway, as I said at the beginning of this episode, it's our great pleasure to be sponsored this week by M.K. Hobson's debut novel, The Native Star, in bookstores now, right now, from Spectra. The Native Star happens to be set in the same world as The Warlock and the Man of the Word, which, incidentally, we bought before we got this sponsorship. This book's got mail-ordered patent magic, zombie miners, romance, cowboys, and a warlock named Dreadnought Stanton. But enough of my hacking. Here's M.K. Hobson to tell you all why this novel is worth your very precious time. Howdy, Podcastle listeners. M.K. Hobson here with a brief commercial message for my debut novel, The Native Star, recently released by Spectra and now available from fine retailers everywhere. It's a historical fantasy romance set in an alternate 1876 America where magic is a mostly accepted part of society. In the book, a spunky timber camp witch from the Sierra Nevadas and a New York City warlock with a past cross the United States by horse, train, and biomechanical flying machine to unlock the secrets of a magical artifact. Along the way, they brave zombie miners, giant slimy raccoons, mysterious Russian scientists, and United States Army blood sorcerers, only to find that love is the most dangerous magic of all. The prologue and chapter one are available on the website, www.thenativestar.com, and you can listen to chapter two by clicking on the link on the podcastle.org homepage. It's a podcastle exclusive and will only be up for a limited time, so don't delay. And as always, enjoy the story. There you have it, folks, straight from the mouth of M.K. Hobson. Chapter two that she mentioned will be available at Podcastle on Friday for a limited time only. We don't push a ton of stuff here at Podcastle. We do our best to just tell you stories and occasionally mention books and authors we like. But personally, I'd love to see Hobson's book strike gold, and I'd love to see more publishers buying up sponsorships with us here at Podcastle. So if you've got $6.99 lying around and you want an incredibly fun book to read this fall, seriously think about this one. Okay. Enough of this wicked Wild West. Let's do feedback for Greg Van Eekout's Wolves Till the World Goes Down, in which Ragnarok is inevitable. Or is it? Consensus on this one was generally positive unless you lived in Denmark, like Rain, who said, I've grown up hearing and reading all the myths about the Norse gods, so I'm probably a little sensitive as to how the story about them should be. This story didn't really interest me, but I didn't hate it either. The dialogue just didn't fit the characters. 
Electric Paladin said, I love the themes of honor and obligation, nobility and sacrifice, and free will battling with prophecies, so you can see this story was basically written for me. The idea of a god making the ultimate sacrifice to spit in Destiny's eye gave me the chills. Still does. I should probably read Norse Code. Why yes, Mr. Paladin, you really, really should. And Brennan said, Aside from a brief bit of disappointment that Hell didn't show up, I have a weird soft spot for her ever since I played her in a game. The story just made me grin from ear to ear. I've read stories before about Loki and Odin scheming to get out of the Ragnarok trap. It was great to see Balder be the one to take action this time. Awesome. It was good to hear so many of you enjoyed this one, and we appreciate all the comments. They mean a lot. Tell us what you thought of this week's story by heading over to our neck of the internet at forum.escapeartist.net. If you want to give us money too, that'd be equally awesome. We rely on you, our audience, as our primary source to keep our authors paid so we can unload fantastic stories on you week after week. Just go to podcastle.org to make a donation. Whatever you can spare is greatly appreciated. It keeps us running. If you don't have the money right now but can blog or tweet about us or even tell a friend, we'd be much obliged to you. That's all we have for this week. Thanks for letting all of us here at Podcastle tell you another story. We'll be back next time with many more horses but less cowboys when we return with Marie Brennan's King Speaker. Until then, keep in mind that God-fearing men don't go up the mountain, and you should live long enough to see us in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. John Wayne said, Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway.